You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Our verses for tonight are from Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, So this semester we're doing something a little bit differently. We're doing uh, kind of a topical series, trying to answer the question, what, what does the Bible mean when it uses this word sanctification? What is sanctification? Which is just the Bible's word for transformation. It's how God graciously transforms you into a whole person, a wholehearted, humble person that loves God and loves other people from the heart. In other words, uh, I've been trying to say that sanctification in a nutshell is God transforming you into the person that you were created to be. And uh, we've been saying that the way that you get transformed is by being united to Jesus. So we said a couple of weeks ago that you are in Christ. So whatever is true of Jesus is true of you. And then we said last week, the flip side is that Christ is also in you and he is empowering you by his spirit to walk in newness of life. So here's the question for tonight. The question for tonight is, okay, now what? What do I, but like, what do I do? And that's going to be kind of essentially what we're going to be trying to answer for the rest of this semester. In light of the fact that we're united to Jesus by faith, what do we do? And to set this up, I want to tell you a story that I heard that is unbelievable. It is absolutely true, and it's one of the craziest stories I ever heard. It goes like this. It's a story of a man named Hiro Anada. Hiro Anada. He was a lieutenant in the Japanese Imperial Army in World War II. You know what I'm talking about. In December of 1944, he was deployed to a small island in the Philippines called Lubang, and he was given the charge, slow down and stop the U.S. forces and do not surrender no matter what. So within a few days, uh, U.S. forces invaded. Most of the Japanese soldiers were either killed or surrendered, but Onada and his three men managed to escape, and they went and hid in the thick 
jungle of that particular island. So from there, these four guys began a guerrilla warfare campaign against the remaining U.S. soldiers. They, they cut supply lines. They stole contraband. They, um, three people caught that. They would um, shoot at stray soldiers and then run back into the uh, jungle. And if you know your history, about six months later, August of 1945, two atomic bombs were dropped on Japan, and World War II uh, came to an end as Japan surrendered. But Onada and his three men, who were still in the jungle, did not know that the war was over. And so they continued to fight, pillaging the locals for food and supplies. They shot at soldiers. And the U.S. military, along with the Japanese government, began dropping thousands and thousands of leaflets all throughout the Pacific region to notify people like Onada that were still in the jungle, the war is over. But Onada and his men got these leaflets, found them, read them, and they just concluded it's fake news. And they thought it was a trap set by the Americans to lure them out to kill them. So they ignored it, and they continued to fight for five more years. The leaflets continued and then eventually stopped. Most of the American forces left, but Onada and his three men kept shooting at livestock. They kept shooting at farmers. They kept shooting at stray soldiers. Several other attempts were made to get Onada and his men to stop fighting. In the year 1952... Seven years after the war, the Japanese emperor himself sent messages throughout the region saying, the war is over, go home. But again, Onada ignored, kept fighting. In 1959, the locals of that island began to fight back. They got sick of it, and there was this kind of war that got started. Once this war began... One of the men in Onada's group died. One surrendered. So it was Onada and one other dude. And they continued to fight until 1969, which was almost 25 years after the end of World War II. Onada's other companion was eventually killed in a shootout, leaving Onada alone hiding in the jungles. And so the locals began to go into the jungles to look for him. In 1972, one guy eventually finds him and is able to sit down with him and talk to him and convince him the war is over, you need to go home. So Lieutenant Onada packed up and returned to Japan in 1974 after fighting a battle for almost 30 years that had already been over. Isn't that an amazing story? I mean, it's... it's, it's so fascinating to me, but it's like so sad at the same time because here's this guy that was like completely delusional. Like he was living totally against the grain of what was like objectively true about reality. And you can look at this story and be like, dude, that guy was an idiot or he was so stubborn or he was so delusional or whatever. And it's just kind of easy to kind of roll your eyes at him. And then when you actually think about your own life, and then you're honest with yourself, you think, man, I live out of touch with reality a lot of the time as well. And so I don't think that that story is actually that unique for you and for me if you happen to find yourself a Christian tonight. I don't assume that everybody in here 
is a Christian by any means, but if you do consider yourself a Christian, my guess is more often than not, you live at odds with what is true about you more so than you live in sync with what's true about you. But what I think is really helpful is that Romans 6, this passage that uh, was just read, is, is so helpful for us because it helps us to understand, okay, what do we do in light of this fact? So what I want to do tonight is, uh, is take a closer look at it. We actually looked at this passage a couple weeks ago, and we just kind of skimmed over it. We're going to do a little bit of a, more of a deeper dive tonight, and I want to just do two things, two big ideas tonight. Number one, we're going to look at the logic of sanctification. I'll explain what that means. And then number two, I'm going to play devil's advocate and try to raise some questions that might be triggered as a result of that. So this is the clunkiest outline I've ever come up with. The logic of sanctification and Matt plays devil's advocate. So that's what we're doing now. Logic, devil's advocate. And by the way, just to cite my resources, I am getting lots of help tonight and really in many ways throughout this whole semester from this pastor in Los Angeles named Rankin Wilburn. So thank you, Rankin. High fives, inside hugs to you. So let's look at... um, Let's look at this first idea, the logic of sanctification. What do I mean by the logic? Well, there is this pattern, there's this overarching logic in most of Paul's letters. Paul's the guy that wrote the book of Romans, and you see this really clearly in Romans 6, what I'm, what I'm about to show you. There's, there's a two-step pattern or logic that kind of gets fleshed out in most of his letters, two steps. And the first step is this. He declares something is true about you in light of what God has done. He's going to make make a statement that says, this is objectively true about you in light of what God has done. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, if you are in Christ, you are dead to sin. That's what's true about you. Let me show you from the actual text. Look at verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Great. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Awesome. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Verse 5, for, we have been, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, on and on and on. Verse 6, now we know that our old self was crucified with him. Look at verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, on and on and on. I mean, it's like almost every verse in this whole thing, he's just saying the same thing over and over and over and over. You have died. You have died. If you're in Christ, your old self is dead. It's been crucified. It's dead. It's dead. It's dead. He's dead. You're dead. Now, what is your old self? We've said this a number of times, and we're going to continue to say it. Your old self is defined by and dominated by three things. What I do, what I have, and what people think of me. And Paul is saying that version of you, that old self, is dead when you get united to Jesus. That is what is objectively true about you. You're dead to sin and alive to God. You're a new creation. That's step one. He declares what's true of you. And then here's step two of this pattern. Step two is, in light of what is true of you, now think of yourself in light of that and live your life in light of that. So look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you have a a pen or a highlighter, I would encourage you to underline or circle or highlight that word consider. Paul is saying you have to change the way that you think about yourself. 
You have to change the way that you understand yourself. You are dead to sin, so you must consider yourself dead to sin. You have to consider, you have to change your mindset about how you see your life and how you actually live your life. So this is the logic of sanctification boiled down in a nutshell, if you're still with me. Step one, this is true. Step two, now go do. It rhymes. Here's what's true about you. Now see yourself and live your life in light of what is true about you. You are dead to sin, so consider yourself dead to sin. That's the logic. Be who you are. Uh, We have a a seven-year-old daughter, Zoe Kate, and we are just now, I'm just now at the point in my life where I have begun to sit down and read through Harry Potter with her, which is something I've been looking forward to since she first arrived. But I feel like seven's a good age to get started. It's a little confusing for her at this point, but... She'll get there. And if you remember, if you remember back, back to book one, when Harry is living under the stairs on Privet Drive with the Dursleys, and it's just miserable, and then all of a sudden he starts getting this flood of all these letters that are telling him, you're a wizard, and you're invited to Hogwarts to study wizardry. And he's like, I didn't even know wizards were a thing. And he gets, he gets invited. And in other words, he is discovering what is true about him. What's true about Harry Potter is that he is this great wizard, and he comes from this great wizard family, and he has somehow mysteriously already defeated he who must not be named, and he didn't even do anything. And he, that is who he is. But the reality is he still has to go to school. He still has to learn to become who he is because he doesn't know how to summon Patronuses. He doesn't know how to, he doesn't know how to do potions. That's why he's got to go to potions class with Snape and all the Slytherins are there and it's this weird inner conflict with these two houses and so he's got to go and be a part of this. But my point is, learning to become who he is is awkward and it's foreign to him and he doesn't know how to do all this stuff. But, but here's the thing. Let's say that he did not go to Hogwarts. Let's say that he decided to not go, and he just stayed at home. I mean, that'd be a, that story would suck. Like, nobody would read that book. It's so much better once he even enters into the challenge of learning how to become who he really is. But the thing is, is that it's hard. Nobody naturally becomes who they are. But, but the thing is, even if he had stayed at home, would that have changed the fact that he was a wizard? No. He couldn't change the fact of what he had received. He couldn't change his identity. He couldn't change what his parents had kind of given to him. And that's kind of the picture, I think, of the Christian life. This is who you are. You cannot change who you are if you are in Christ. But you have to practice and learn how to become who you really are. And becoming who you are is not easy. It's not natural. It's it's awkward. But that's what it takes for you to learn to become who you truly are. Really, really the, best, um, the best image that I have heard that kind of captures this idea is if you picture a little kid that puts on their father's dress shirt. You know, it's big and it and it's, and it's hangs off of them. It's, 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 uh, it's too big for him, but he is going to have to slowly grow up into maturity until the shirt actually fits. 
That's a picture of the Christian life. The gospel is you are clothed in Christ. You are, you are invincibly secure in his grace, in his love, in his favor, in his faithfulness, in his commitment to you. And all along your life, you are going to have to grow up into that and become who you actually are. And as you begin doing that, you are going to fail and you're going to fall and you're going to experience weakness and fear and hardship. But all along the way, you are covered. But what you begin to see is that following Jesus, obeying Jesus, even submitting to Jesus is not a demand that you have to live up to. It is a privileged calling that you get to live into. And that is a big difference on how you understand the Christian life. Following Jesus is not a demand to live up to, but it's a calling that you get to live into. That's the logic of sanctification. This is true about you. Now you live in light of that. Or you can ignore to live in light of that like Lieutenant Onada and live at odds with what is objectively true about you. Now, I don't know how that sits with you. I know that's kind of weird. And it may be a, a different way of understanding this kind of stuff. But let me move on to point two and play devil's advocate for a second. I'm switching the script and I'm, I'm in devil's advocate mode. And I want to answer two questions in light of everything that I just said. If you're still with me. You're with me? Great. Question number one. Matt, does this mean... Gosh, I'm so sweaty. Does this mean that I can be this sweaty in front of this many people? Yes. Um, It's not the question. Does this mean that my personality is essentially evaporated? Like, if I follow Jesus and I die, I mean, that's what the Bible is saying, if I die when I follow Jesus, does that mean I lose myself? I have to become somebody else other than who I really am. And I really struggled with this question when I was a college student. Um, I, I mean, if you've been around RUF long enough or if you know me, you know that I'm silly and I'm, I like to be playful and entertain and I'm just, I don't know, I'm just weird. And every Christian, when I was in college, there were, there were no older Christians that were like that. The only older Christians that I knew of were, they were serious, and they were well-read, and they were soft-spoken, and they were gentle, like Gandalf. <laughs> and so I just thought, okay, I'm imma- these qualities about me, this is immaturity, And for me to grow up, for me to become a Christian, actually mature in my faith means that I have to stop being like this and become something else. Is that what sanctification is? You becoming someone otherly, otherly, entirely different. Is that what it is? And here's my answer. No. Sanctification is not you. Is God... Sanctification is God changing you into the person that you were created to be. Sanctification, you being in Christ, that is your truest self. There's there's a great example of this. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's stuff, but before C.S. Lewis was a a Christian, he, he, you know, he's an academic and a professor, and he researched and wrote about medieval and Renaissance literature and uh, narrative. And uh, from, from what I've heard, I've never read his academic stuff, but from, from what I've heard, his academic stuff before he was in Christ was boring. 
Like, I'm sure it was good. I'm sure it was, like, well done and well-researched, but it just was boring. And when he became a Christian, it's like his true self came out. And if you've ever read his stuff, I mean, his writing is, like, amazing. His his ability to, like, word things or phrase things or, like, he has these incredible analogies. He has, like, this um, dry British humor that is so, like, good as you read his stuff. But it's like... the real C.S. Lewis came out when he got connected to Jesus. You being connected to Jesus does not remove your personality. It does not replace your personality. He redeems your personality. He beautifies your personality. You actually become who you were created to be in your truest sense of who you are in Christ. In Christ, that is the truest you that there is. So, okay, here's the second question. Okay, Matt, but following Jesus doesn't feel like the real me. In fact, the real me feels like the opposite. Okay, let's talk about this. In fact, let's, maybe let's just have an inner, you know, a, a family discussion real quick. Um, let's be honest for a second. I want you to think about this. You don't have to answer out loud. In fact, don't answer out loud, but... Haven't you ever thought, if you're a Christian tonight, haven't you ever thought, being a Christian kind of sucks? Have you ever thought that? We're like, here I am on this campus and all my cool friends are doing like the college thing. And I kind of want to do the college thing, but I can't because I'm a Christian. So sometimes it just kind of sucks because it feels like I'm restricted from doing what I really want to do, but I can't do what I really want to do. But if that's what I really want to do, that's what's most true about me. And so following Jesus feels inauthentic. It feels like I'm being fake. It feels like there's this divide and here's like fake me and here's real me and I'm not really this, I'm really this. That resonate with anybody? Well, uh, It's like Paul is saying in Romans 6. This is why I love Romans 6, by the way. It's like Paul is saying, I get it. Like, I know. I feel the same way. This is why he says, uh, consider yourselves dead to sin. He says, being a Christian, following Jesus doesn't always feel like that's your truest self. But objectively, it is. So that's why you have to consider yourself in light of how God sees you. That's what faith is. Faith is learning to see yourself in light of what God says is true about yourself, even when it doesn't feel like that's what's true about yourself. That's what faith is. Faith is learning to trust God's opinion of you more than you trust your opinion of you, and more than you trust anybody else's opinion of you. So what I want you to see is that God is not calling you to be something other than you are. God's not telling you to, you know, fake it until you make it. He's not asking Christians to pretend and to be inauthentic and to be something other than they are. He's actually inviting you to be who you most truly are. Be who you most truly are in Christ. Let's say that there is this homeless beggar that every single day for his entire life he has woken up, woken up, He woke up, and he walks to the corner, and he asks people for change. That's what he has done every single day his entire life. And then one day he gets a notification that his estranged, rich uncle just passed away, and he got this inheritance of $8 million. 
So he's instantly rich. That is what is objectively true about him. Yay, that's awesome. Good day for this guy. So let's say the next day after getting this news, he wakes up and and really just out of habit, out of just pure muscle memory, he wakes up and he goes to the corner and he begins asking people for money. And that feels so natural to him. That feels like that is what is most true of him. He has always done that. So that's what actually feels the most comfortable to him. This is his truest self, he thinks. But then he catches himself and he realizes, whoa, I totally forgot. I got $8 million. I can go buy a Ferrari. So I'm not going to do this anymore. And so he leaves and goes and does that. That's what it's like to live in light of your sanctification, to actually be who you are. This is why Paul says in verse 11, you must consider yourself dead to sin because you are. Faith is you consciously, actively recognizing and affirming this is what God says is true about me, so I am going to believe that it's true of me. I'm going to consider myself dead to sin because I am. Doesn't feel like it. Feels like my son is very much alive and well, but I'm dead to it. Now, here's an example from my life. Here's what this looks like in practice. Before I get up and speak in front of you every week, I go and I stand over there and I sing the songs. And as as my turn to get up here gets closer and closer and closer, I get increasingly more nervous and more anxious. And my heart beats and my palms get sweaty because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get up in front of all these people. And I've learned to ask myself the question, okay, why? Why am I anxious? And I say, well, because this really needs to go well. Okay, why? Why does this need to go well? Because if it doesn't go well, then none of these people are going to come back. Okay, well, what's, what's wrong with that? What if these people don't come back? And then I say, well, if they don't come back, then like RUF falls apart. Okay, what's, what's wrong with RUF falling apart? What if RUF falls apart? Well, if RUF falls apart, then like I don't have, I don't have anything to show for myself. Like I don't know who I am if RUF falls apart. That's, that's like an extension of me in a sense. And then I realize, oh my goodness, I am living my life driven by fear and insecurity because I'm basing my sense of self on what, what I do, what I have, and what people think of me. That's my old self. That's my old self talking. And so what I've begun to learn to do at my life, at this point as a 37-year-old Christian that's been following Jesus for 20 years, I'm learning for the first time to look at my old self and say, that's not who I am anymore. I don't have to listen to you. I am in Christ and alive in Christ, and I don't have to listen to these old ways any longer. And so here's some examples of what this might look like for you. You might be tempted uh, to look at something sexually inappropriate on your phone tonight before you go to sleep. And everything in you, you, it just feels like this overwhelming pull to look at something and you so deeply want to. And to say no to it feels so restricting. It feels like, feels like you're denying what is most true of your heart. But what you can say in that moment is, that's my old self talking. I don't have to listen to you. That's not who I am anymore. I am a new person in Christ. I don't, have to, I don't have to listen to you anymore. And so what you're doing in that moment, you're not faking it. You're not faking and pretending to be something that you're not. You're actually practicing being the person that you most truly are. 
Someone that says no to sin. That is who you are. Okay, here's another example. Let's say that your girlfriend criticizes you. Let's say she confronts you about something because you did not respond to her text message quickly enough or you haven't made time for her. And so, she, so y'all sit down and she begins to kind of talk to you about this and her frustration, her anger, something in you begins to get activated where you find yourself wanting to defend yourself. And there's something in you where there's this bitterness and this resentment that's kind of growing towards her and you're wanting to roll your eyes at her because... This is so stupid. In fact, now you want, to be go, you want to go on the offense and attack her because you've got a million things that you can think of, of things that she's done wrong, ways that she's failed this relationship, and you haven't even brought this up because you're a kind and nice person, and you have all this at your disposal, and you're about to unload it all on her, and then you catch yourself. <laughs> and you say, that's my old self talking. That's my old self talking. I don't have to listen to you anymore. That's not who I am anymore. I can actually be patient and empathetic and listen. And, oh, I don't know, apologize. Because that's who I am in Christ. Someone with patience and empathy and with with a sense of self that is not rooted in what other people think of you. This is where the rubber meets the road where you actually begin to see yourself and you live your life in light of what is true as opposed to ignoring it like Lieutenant Onada and living at odds with what is true. Now, here's the, here's the uh, final thing I want to share with you. I'll, I'll conclude with a story. This is a true story. Uh, a, a number, uh, uh, two times a year, all the RUF staff across the country we get together for this thing called staff training, and we bring in these other speakers and other pastors to come and address our national staff. And a number of years ago, there was a pastor that stood up in front of our staff and told this heartbreaking story about his daughter that uh, you know, was in her 20s and really wrestled with eating disorder for years. And so the family, they were so heartbroken over this. They were so overwhelmed with this. Um, she saw herself as ugly. She saw herself as unappealing. She saw herself as someone that had nothing to offer. Something was wrong with her. And when anybody else looked at her, they saw the exact opposite. They saw someone that was beautiful and kind and compassionate and courageous. And uh, people could not understand how she, would, she could have such a distorted view of herself. And so this went on for years, and the parents were heartbroken. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to help her. And um, the dad was the one that was telling the story to us. He said that his wife, her mom, sat down with her one day at, like, the kitchen table. And the mom looked at her and said, you, you think that you're ugly, don't you? You think that you have nothing to offer, don't you? And the mom, and the daughter said, it's not that I think that, it's that I know that. I know that I'm ugly. I know that I'm unappealing. And the mom said, okay, well, because I disagree, because I think differently, let's just say that Jesus walked in the room and he could answer this question for us. He could settle this debate. And let's just say we asked him, we said, Jesus, you know, we've been arguing about this for years. She thinks that she's ugly. She thinks that she's unappealing. She's unattractive. I think that she's beautiful just the way that she is. I think that she's amazing. I think that she's lovely. 
What do you think, Jesus? Will you settle this debate for us? And the mom looks at the daughter and says, what do you think Jesus would say? And be honest. And the daughter said, I think Jesus would say that I'm beautiful just the way that I am. And the mom says, don't you see what you're doing? You think that the thing that breaks God's heart is like doing bad stuff, lying, cheating. But what you're doing is you're looking directly in the eyes of Jesus, in the face of Jesus, and saying, I don't care what you think about me. I know what I think about me, which makes you, Jesus, either a liar or you're wrong. And what she's saying to her daughter is you're privileging how you see yourself over how God sees you, and your life is unraveling as a result. God sees you so much differently than you see yourself. He sees you as amazing and as beautiful and as lovely. He sees you as someone that is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He sees you as someone clothed in his righteousness and in his beauty and in his glory because you are in Christ. That is who you actually are. So what is faith? Faith is choosing to believe what God says about you over and against how you feel about you and over and against what other people think about you. That's what faith is. And you really do have a choice. And and here's where I want to end. You have a choice. You can ignore that. You can live at odds with that like Lieutenant Onada and live a, a delusional life and continue in destructive patterns driven by what I do what I am, or or what people think of me and what I have, and dominated by fear and insecurity and busyness and exhaustion and greed and pride and on and on and on and on. But you don't have to. You can actually choose to practice to be who you are in your truest self, in Christ, forgiven, righteous, beautiful, empowered by the Spirit to live the life that you were created to live. So that's the invitation. Will you choose to live at odds with what is true? Or will you live in light of what is true and actually become who you really are in Christ? That's the invitation. Let me pray. Father, I do pray for those of us in this room that know you, that you would help us to trust what you say is true about us and that we would see ourselves in light of that, and live our lives in light of that. And Father, for those of us in this room that don't know you and still find their lives dominated by what they do and what they have and what people think of them, I do pray, Father, that you would draw them to your heart, draw them to yourself, that they might find new life, that the old self would die, and the new self, the true self, would come alive. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.